All right, we are now in part two of our study in church history. And as we related last week, this will be a very high flyover of history, as you might imagine, if we're going to try to cover this material in just a couple of years, uh, we're not going to be able to delve into all aspects of church history. We'll just touch them very lightly as we expressed last week in our introduction. I tried to give you a few items last week in our introduction related to the purpose of our study, uh, some of the relative results and fruit of our study. And so tonight, let's go ahead and get right into that study. This is technically part two. We're going to talk about the historical background, and this will just be you know, the first section of that. We will not continue all of that. We won't cover all of that tonight. But let's begin with just uh, some statements related to his, the historical background that is behind church history. I want to begin with a quote from Philip Schaff in, one, in his volume, The History of the Christian Church. And Pastor Linehan was sharing with me this evening that we do have, we have that set of volumes. It's an eight-volume set in our library. So if you want to go back and uh, kind of read up on some of these things, you're welcome to do that. And we also have Nick Needham's five-volume set, at least five volumes so far. Uh, we have that in our library as well. So if you'd like to make yourself, uh, you can avail yourself of that material also. Let me quote from Philip Schaff in his History of the Christian Church, and I quote, the history of the church is the rise and progress of the kingdom of heaven upon earth for the glory of God and the salvation of the world. It begins with the creation of Adam and with that promise of the serpent bruiser, Christ, which relieved the loss of the paradise of innocence by the hope of future redemption from the curse of sin. So you can see that where he believes, where does he believe church history begins? Begins at creation. Continuing his quote, it comes down through the preparatory revelations under the patriarchs, Moses, and the prophets, to the immediate forerunner of the Savior, who pointed his followers to the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. So now we've started with creation, made our way through the prophets up to John the Baptist, continuing the quote, but this part of its course was only introduction. Its proper starting point is the incarnation of the eternal word who dwelt among us and revealed his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And next to this, the miracle of the first Pentecost when the church took her place as a Christian institution filled with the spirit of the glorified Redeemer and entrusted with the conversion of all nations. And I end my quote there. I could continue that quote because it continues on where he discusses the church, that church history makes its way all the way up to that final resurrection that Christ would bring to that last generation that would be alive at his second coming. So church history, of course, just takes over that whole time span from the creation all the way up to the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. So all of that is by divine sovereign control. And I hope all of us can get an appreciation of that. When we're looking at history, 
of the church, particularly, we're not looking at just a haphazard, random, circumstantial, coincidental series of events. All of this is orchestrated by the hand of God. All of it is put forward. All of it is by his divine purpose and for his own glory and for our good. And I hope we can see that. So in our study in church history tonight, here's what we want to do. The question we want to ask this evening is, what was humanity like? What was the world like when Christ came at his first advent? Because as Philip Schaff said, all of the other incidences are introductory to that actual beginning of what we would consider the church, where you have Israel, you have the Gentiles grafted into that people of God, Romans, and then brought forward as the church. When Peter made that great confession of Christ, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And then Jesus said what? Upon these words I will, I will build my church. So what was the world like in those days when Christ said those words to Peter and subsequently to all of us and to all of the world? There are two basic parts to the answer to that question. One has to do with the Roman Empire and the other has to do with the Jewish state or what we understand as Israel. We'll cover Israel in a subsequent lesson. Tonight we'll begin our study of the Roman Empire. I, do, I know we will not complete that, but as a background, we're going to look at the Roman Empire first. All right. Again, this will not be an exhaustive study. It will be a comprehensive study, I hope, at least giving us some of the main points of the Roman Empire as it was forming the background of the church. If you would, for this, I'd like to take you to a passage in the Bible, a familiar passage in the book of Galatians. Would you turn, please, in your Bibles to the book of Galatians, and we'll look at chapter 4 and verse 4. And if, when I said the book of Galatians, I'm sure a lot of you, your minds went right to this passage as it relates to the coming of the Son of God during this particular time in history when it is pretty much dominated by the Roman Empire. But you come to Galatians chapter 4, and you have these words in verse 4. The Word of God tells us, the inerrant, infallible Word of God tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And I want to draw your attention to those first words in verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. It would be foolish for us and speculative to say, well, why this time? Why not a different time in history? But we know that it was at this time in history that God sent forth his son into the world when the Roman Empire dominated this part of the world. When the incarnate Son of God entered humanity, the dominant political force was Rome. It was diverse in many ways. It had different ethnicities. It had different races. It had different languages. It had different beliefs. 
But there was something that held it all together. There was something that glued it together. And according to the historians, Rome was pretty much glued together by three important forces. So our study tonight, dealing with one aspect of the background to church history and the background to the beginning of the church, the Roman Empire, there are three dominant forces that held that empire together. And we want to examine those quickly tonight. The first of these is it had a unified political system. It had a unified political system. As large as it was, as diverse as it was, it was still unified politically at this time. The empire was actually an expansion of the central city of Rome. This is why they called it the Roman Empire, because it started in the city of Rome, from which one individual reigned over the entire empire in Rome as small. It started, Rome the city was founded in 753 B.C., if I'm not mistaken, I did not write it down in my notes, but I think this was about the time that Isaiah was prophesying in Israel. Rome was beginning in 753 B.C. Someone can check me on that, and I'll fix that in a later recording, but I think that's accurate. Uh, he, he ruled over, the, the whole nation was ruled over by kings for about 200 years. So up until about 500 B.C., the empire was ruled over by kings as it began to grow slowly and expand over that part of the world. There was a revolution in 510 BC, and then Rome began to be run as a republic of sorts. So you had elite, rich individuals, powerful individuals who could control certain armies, and they formed a sort of a republic and they ousted the kings, and they had a rather strong animosity against any monarchs. And so around 500 B.C., 510 B.C., you had it ruled pretty much by these monarchs, uh, by these senates, by a senate of sorts in, in opposition to a monarchy. Rome continued to grow. It expanded. It stretched across the entire Mediterranean European area. It covered all almost entirely, the, uh, if, if not entirely, northern Africa, and then the area that we now know as the Middle East. And so Rome began to spread and, and grow under, these, under this Republican rule. However, in the first century BC, a series of civil wars among the people fragmented the nation, or the, the empire. So you had different factions fighting against each other. You had these civil wars breaking out. At first, it appeared that one strong general who came to the forefront would become the emperor of Rome. And that was Julius Caesar, right? So Julius Caesar was the first one after all these civil wars to be a central figure who was strong and would take over the empire. But if you've ever read your history, you know that that didn't last. So certain senators in that Senate in the Republic did not want any kind of a monarch, any kind of a ruler like that, and so he was slain. He was assassinated. You would think that would end it, that now the Republic would be restored and the nation would go on again. No, more civil wars broke out. Another series of civil wars broke out until finally another 
leader came to the forefront and brought uh, unanimity and to, from among all the chaos of all the civil wars. That was a man by the name of Octavius Caesar. Octavius Caesar was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Right? So Octavius Caesar assumed the role of the emperor in 31 BC. We know him as Augustus Caesar. Augustus was not his name. Augustus was a title. He was called Augustus. We all recognize the name Augustus. We have an English word august, something that's lifted up, something that's high and exalted. That was Caesar. Nick Needham, in his commentary, and I, not necessarily a commentary, in his history of the church, writes these words, quote, Augustus was the first and perhaps the greatest of all the Roman emperors. His 45 years of government restored peace, stability, justice, and civilization to a war-torn world, end quote. So what the Senate could not bring about through its republic, Octavius was able to do in his rule as the emperor over the entire empire. And because Augustus Caesar ruled and reigned and matured into such a, a, a good emperor, in fact, some of historians believe that he was the greatest of all the emperors over Rome, uh, the one who brought about the best prosperity, the one who uh, really brought about a great deal of an end to any chaos, was Caesar Augustus. Right? And you find in Luke chapter 2, we know exactly from our Bibles, that this was the emperor who ruled during the days when Christ was born. In Luke 2 and verse 1, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So he was the Caesar at the time of Christ's coming. And again, because Augustus matured into such a flourishing and promising and triumphant leader, Rule by one man became the norm for nearly the rest of Rome's history. So even though there still was a Senate, there still was a Republic, really the power rested in the Caesar of the land. And at that, in those days, it was Augustus because he was such a great leader. Right? And they just they thought he, he was a wonderful leader, and they they continued in that style. People grew to depend on the emperor to maintain. Uh, to maintain order, uh, to prevent chaos within the borders of the Roman Empire. And they also depended on the emperor and his armies to protect them from outside invaders, such as the Persians off to the east, who in those days were called the Parthians, and against a lot of the Germanic tribes that were up to the north that would try to invade the Roman Empire. So they depended on him for protection as well. So that's the unified political system that held the empire together. That's the first of three. There's a second thing that historians say held the empire together, not just a unified political system, but also a unified economic system. The cities of the Roman Empire, those large coastal cities particularly, demonstrated a great dependence on trade throughout the empire. So the empire began to be a place where you would have different individuals, different 
different sections of the nation would, betend, would depend on other sections of the nation for their goods. One portion of the empire might be particularly strong in the area of providing grain, fruits, vegetables. Other parts of the country needed, or this, of the empire needed those things. Maybe another part of the country, the empire would be strong in the area of textiles, dyes, wools, clothing. And so they would make that trade. And you, you can just see what's going on here. This is why the cities that were particularly large were on the coasts, because they would have this, these trade routes across the Mediterranean from one to another. So it had this really strong, interconnected, unified economic system that helped them a great deal. Different parts of the empire provided various goods and services to other parts of the empire. So a mutual exchange of these items contributed to a unified economic system as well. So you had a unified political system that held the empire together. You had a unified economic system that held the empire together. And thirdly, and probably the most important, is you had a unified intellectual system, a unified intellectual system that held the empire together. The interesting thing in history that might surprise us is that even though it was a Roman empire, the culture was not Roman. The strong cultural dominance was held by the Greeks. Right? It was the Greek culture that dominated the land during these days. Due to the conquests of Alexander the Great during the 4th century BC, Greece was at that time the dominant force just prior to the Romans. You can see this in the prophecies of Daniel, right? that you had the Babylonian Empire, then would come the Medo-Persian Empire, then would come the Greek Empire, and then fourthly, the Roman Empire. And again, I hope you're seeing the hand of God and the sovereign moving of God's hand in history as he brings these things to fruition. We're just studying it backwards. God prophesied it from the beginning. Because the Greek culture, or the, the Greeks were so dominant in those days of, Roman, of Alexander the Great, Greek culture, or what we know as Hellenism, spread throughout all the Mediterranean, Europe, Asia, not, uh, Egypt, uh, and Asia Minor, and also the Middle East, all of that area. So as Rome swept eastward, they were just assumed by that Greek culture that was so dominant in the day. We call it Hellenism. Hellenism is a term derived from the word hellos, H-E-L-L-A-S, hellos, which is the Greek name for Greece. So if you just say, what's the Greek name for Greece? They would tell you it's hellos in Greek. So from that word, we get the words Hellenism. Throughout the Roman conquests of this area, the Romans found the Greek culture very appealing. And so they enjoyed all of these aspects of Greek culture. One historian said this, quote, the armies of Rome vanquished the East, but the Eastern culture vanquished Rome, end quote. So you, that's, that's the kind of the idea. Even though the Greek empire because, it, and I'll talk about that in a moment, was kind of broken up into pieces. 
the Romans found it easy prey to take over, the Greek culture remained, and it was very strong. Greek culture began to flourish throughout the Roman Empire. Education, art, philosophy, science, and most particularly the language. They had a, they had a, uh, the language was the language of common people, and it was the language of commerce. And you remember a moment ago we said that one of those forces that held the empire together was their unified economic system. That was able to be held together very strongly because of their common language. They all spoke their native tongue. They would speak, you know, Assyrian or you know, whatever their language was. They would speak their language. But they all spoke Greek. They, they had to assume some amount of Greek in order to participate in the culture, to participate in business. And so this is what a many, many historians believe is the reason that the gospel was able to flourish so quickly and spread so fast was because of that common language. We even know that the word of God, breathed out by God, was written in what language? Was written in the common language of the Greek people, that Koine Greek. And so you have your New Testaments written in the language that almost everyone understood and spoke in those days. So it had a unified political system, had a unified economic system, had a unified intellectual system. So not only was Rome held together by those three main forces, but there are also religious factors that we want to take into consideration. Okay? So we're talking about the Roman Empire. We're discussing, we've already discussed those four or those three items that held the, the, the nation, the empire together, right? those three systems. Tonight also we want to discuss religion that was a background to the forming of the Christian church. There were four main religions that were influential during the days when the early church was being formed by Jesus and his disciples. Besides Judaism, we'll discuss Judaism as a separate section in a subsequent lesson. But tonight we're going to discuss four other major religions that are important for us to understand as a background to the forming of the Christian church. And we need to understand that these religions all posed specific threats against the Christians of the day. So we'll look at the various religions and we'll see how the church had to face those even during the days when the testament of our Bibles were being, was being written, the New Testament. Okay. All right. The first of these is traditional pagan worship or traditional pagan religion. This would include the traditional Greek and Roman gods of mythology. So when you think of Zeus, you think of Apollo, you think of Aphrodite, you think of Diana, you think of Mercury, Poseidon, that's what we're talking about. Those Greek gods that form from the Titans on the Mount Olympus and have kind of a varying power over various aspects of human existence. That's mythology. So that's the traditional pagan worship. The highest and dominant god would be Zeus in Greek, and the Latin name for this god is Jupiter, or you may see his name as Jove, J-O-V-E, Jove. So whenever you hear, particularly British, someone will say, by 
Job, right? There, it's really a, a, an expression I would not recommend that we use. It's it's a term, you know, by the greatest of the gods. As you all know, there were any number of gods that superintended over various aspects of human life. Poseidon, of course, over the life of the sea. Various gods. If you were a farmer, you would particularly want to you would want to please and appease that specific god over that aspect. If you were into the growing of grapes for wine, you would particularly want to please that particular god who was over that aspect of your life. So each one had a different influence over some aspect of different life. I want to turn to a book of the Bible, and that is Acts chapter 19. And I want to see, I want you to see again how the church had to face that particular obstacle to its growth related to pagan worship. So let's turn to the book of Acts. We'll go to chapter 19, and we are going to pick up our reading in verse 21. Acts chapter 19, and we'll pick up our reading of verse 21. Of course, Paul is on his missionary journey. He says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Let's pause for a moment. When you see there in verse 22 that he had to stay in Asia for a while, don't think of Asia as we think of Asia. Think of Asia Minor, right, where uh, churches where he went to up in, in Galatia in that area, right? Uh, that's where he was. So think of modern-day Turkey, that kind of an area. And then when you see where it says a disturbance concerning the way, you see the way is capitalized, that's a reference to the Christian faith. So here's a disturbance there concerning the way. In other words, it's concerning the teachings of Paul related to the Christian doctrine. Okay? So there's this no small disturbance, right, which means it was a riot, in fact, the, my Bible has a title for this section called A Riot at Ephesus. All right. Verse 24. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Let's stop our reading. Where is his heart? Where is his concern? Right? He makes idols to Artemis. Right? So all of a sudden, there are people not buying gods of Artemis anymore. That's the no disturbance caused by the teaching of the way. So he gathers together these other individuals who make these crafts and have a similar trade, possibly making gods idols to other gods and he gets them together and says you know that this is important to us or we're going to lose our livelihood verse 26 and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia this Paul has persuaded and turned away 
a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worship. Artemis was the goddess of nature, the goddess of childbirth, the goddess of wildlife, goddess of the hunt, the goddess of sudden death, the goddess of animals, virginity, young women, and archery. So that covers a lot of aspects of your life. So you want to make sure that she's happy. Right? Her name is Artemis. That's her Greek name. Her Roman name is Diana. And there are a number of Bible translations that will use the word Diana in that translation. If you have a King James Version, it'll say it'll have the reference to Diana. Uh, why that's the case, I am uncertain. But the gods, it's the goddess is Artemis in Greek, and the goddess and the Roman name is Diana. So you can see that the Christians of the day confronted this false religion, this pagan, traditional pagan worship. We may be tempted to think this way. Well, we're not going to face that here. No one believes in Diana anymore. No one worships goddesses and goddesses and gods anymore, right? I mean, that, honestly, this is so this is so first century, right? We're, we're, we're past that. Well, I think if you just do a quick Google search, I think you'll be sadly reminded that this is still ongoing today, that there are many, many thousands and multiple thousands of people who still worship traditional pagan religions. And it is still something that we will face and we will struggle against, even though this is part of the religion of the day that forms a background for the Christian church. Pagan religions are still very much a part of the lives of millions of followers even today. I believe that one of the fruits of our study in church history should be a, in being able to inform us so that we'll have the ability to recognize false religions and to bring the scriptures to bear in order to refute these false religions, then hopefully it might be said of us that these individuals are causing no small disturbance among our business and our followers. So, uh, continuing, these gods would act capriciously over the affairs of business, politics, love, war, agriculture, any number of things. And that was the official religion of the empire. We'll discuss three more religions that were influential, but this was the official religion of the empire. Right. And to the Romans, more gods the merrier. They, the more the better, right? We don't want to offend any gods. Right? We'll, we'll read a passage later about um, offending an unknown god. Right? So they had gods to all these different gods, and if there's one we've left out, we don't want to offend that God, so we'll have an, a, an idol to that God. And so the more gods, the better to, in, more, in their minds. Right? People were desperate to discern the will of these gods 
And so they turned to divination, astrology, any kind of sorcery that would aid them in gaining the favor of these gods. And so they were extremely superstitious and they would do anything to make those gods happy so that they could have prosperous lives. The leading citizens of Rome were expected to perform the various ceremonies and duties that were a part of these religions. It was just an expectation. In fact, the Roman emperor himself was considered the highest priest of this religion. Traditional pagan worship, the highest priest in that religion was a godlike figure in their minds, the Caesar, or the emperor of the day. His title was Pontifex Maximus. Right? You remove a pontificate, right? The Pope, as it were. So he was sort of the, the god on earth of all these gods, Pontifex Maximus. That brings us to the second major religion of the Roman Empire, and that is number two, Roman emperor worship. Emperor worship. The Romans attributed their success of dominion over so much of the world to a divine power that resided within the emperor himself. Ooh. The Greeks added more strength to this belief since they already held a belief that kings were, in a sense, God incarnate. So the Greeks were happy to go along with this as well because these individuals were considered to be godlike. So it wasn't a large leap to attribute divinity to a man who happened to be the emperor. Okay, so that's emperor worship as well. And you're all familiar with the expression where you know, the, the people of God in those days could express their own faith in their Lord Jesus, but they were also called upon to say what? Caesar is Lord. Not that Caesar is just a great high ruler, that he's a great magistrate, but that he is a god, and they would not do that. Their consciences forbid them. The word of God forbid them to do that. And it was in that day when they began to be persecuted by the government. We'll talk a little bit about that later. So those are two of the main religions that form a background for the establishment of the church. We'll discuss the other two next week. All right. Let's bow for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here together tonight. We pray that you would bless these thoughts as we give our attention to your sovereign hand over history. Bless in our time of prayer to follow. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.